All right. Do I have a slide? 2 Samuel chapter 12, part B. And I think there's going to be a part C and D. I I learned from the 8 o'clock service that I did not get through the whole sermon. So now we are going to run short as well. I am sorry. You will have to come back next week to get the rest of it. So I am... If you remember, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon about David dancing before the Lord in that white robe. And do you remember his wife, Michelle, was very upset with him? And I entitled that sermon, Man, David, are you in trouble when you get home with your wife? Do you remember that? She was upset. Oh, you know, you distinguish yourself dancing before the Lord and, and the women could see your calves on your legs and ah, you know. So, but this sermon is, David, you're not as in much trouble with your wife as you are with the Lord. So last week we talked about David cheating with Bathsheba, by, by the way, I did not mention this, and I stole myself, but where, where did David see her? He's on the roof, and, and he sees her on the roof. And what does it tell us in Scripture that she is doing? She's bathing, it says. Don't you think that's weird that the beginning of her name is bath? I think that's strange. And then I was thinking, she's a bath, she's a sheep, and she's Bathsheba, B-A is for bad. She's a bathing sheep that's bad. Okay. So, David cheats with Bathsheba. He, he hears those scary words when you have an affair, and she delivers a message, I'm pregnant. And now he's like, oh boy. And then he comes up with an idea to eliminate her husband. So 2 Samuel 12, or let's back up in chapter 11. So, and this is kind of sad. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab's the general of the army and sent it with Uriah. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. I feel Uriah, who is one of the 31 mighty warriors, he's been a friend of David's for a long time. Uriah is actually, he's so trusting of David, he actually delivers, without even looking, his own letter of how he's going to die to Joab, the general, who has Uriah put to death by following these instructions. Verse 26 of chapter 11. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I have no idea how long. A couple days? A couple weeks? I don't know. Verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife. And bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, by the way, so how long has it been since 
they committed adultery and we read that the thing David had done displeased the Lord, which was after the birth of their son. Can you figure that out? Do you know how long a pregnancy is? Nine months. So I'm thinking King David's like, I'm, I got away with this. It's been nine months. Nothing's happened to me. I've, you know, I got away with it. But then we read that the Lord was displeased with David. David, you're not as in much trouble with your wife as you are with the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, so Nathan is David's pastor. He's a prophet. And the Lord sent him. And he's going to give this parable that's really about David and Uriah. But you have to kind of read through the lines. There were two men in a certain town, one rich... That's you, David. And the other poor, that's Uriah. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. That's King David with all his wives. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. That's Uriah that has just one wife. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger, ah, against the man. And he said to Nathan, you know what? As surely as the Lord lives, that man that did this deserves to die. He must die. He's got to pay for it. That lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. So let me see here. Okay. Well, let's read on. Calamity on you. Because before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Okay, we're going to stop there. So I got eight lessons, eight powerful thought-provoking lessons in this section of scripture. Lesson number one is there are certain sins that really get under the skin of God the Father if he actually had skin. So I I know that all sin, God hates all sin, and all sin will send us to hell. But the question is, is there certain sins 
that God says, I really don't like these sins. I hate these. I despise them. These, these are at the top of the list. And the answer is yes. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 tells us the seven sins that drive God mad, angry, okay? So here they are. David, let's see how you line up. These, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that he detests. Number one, he hates that pride, haughty look, that pride. David, you've got that. Ding, you got one of the seven. Number two, a lying tongue. Oh, yeah, David's lying to Uriah and ding, two out of seven so far, David, you've got. Number three, hands that kill the innocent. Ding, you got that one too, David. You're batting 300 or whatever they say. Uh, Yeah, you killed Uriah, the innocent. Number four, a heart that plots evil. Ding, you got that one too, David. You were plotting the death of Uriah. Number five, feet that race to do wrong. Ding, you got that one. Because David, I mean, he's like, oh, well, uh, she's pregnant. What am I? Oh, very quickly, he devises the plan of having Uriah put to death. So he, feet that race to do, he, you got that one too, David. Number five, a false witness who pours out lies. You got that one. And uh, last one. Seven, a person who sows discord in a family. Oh, yeah, you broke up. You broke up a family, Bathsheba. Ding, David, you got all seven. You got a 300 in bowling. No wonder why God's displeased with you. Lesson number two. What's the toughest part, one of the toughest parts of being a pastor? And it's back in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan, who's David's pastor, prophet, to David to confront David with his sin. That's the toughest thing about being a pastor is when I have to confront people with their sin that are close friends. David, David and Nathan are close. That's got to be tough, very dangerous all through Scripture Pastors and prophets who have confronted people with their sin have often died. You remember John the Baptist, right? He confronted King Herod. Didn't work out too well for him. King Herod, you shouldn't be with your brother's wife. And John the Baptist lost his head over that. But even worse, so I was thinking about an oncologist. Here's an oncologist. He's looking at the x-rays of a young man here that just found out the horrible news that he's got brain cancer. And I was thinking, boy, it's got to be tough to be an oncologist, to constantly have to tell people after looking at their MRI and say to them, I got bad news for you. You've got cancer. That's got to get to them. I'm thinking an oncologist has to tell 10 people, young kids and teenagers and every day you're giving this bad news you, you, you got cancer you have cancer you you know like oh man that's got to play with their mind 
So this is like a spiritual MRI. And for pastors, it's very difficult because when I do the spiritual MRI, I find that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that all of us deserve to go to hell, that the wages of sin is death, that you all have that we all of us have spiritual cancer. And I don't like telling people that they're sinners and that they, unless they get the treatment, which is Jesus Christ and his blood, unless you get the treatment, you're going to die and go to hell. No pastor likes to do that. In fact, there's a whole movement in the United States where pastors are like, we're not doing that anymore. We're not telling people that. It's too, it's too painful. People don't want to hear it. Can you imagine the oncologist? He's done it so long, and he finally says, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's too brutal. It's too hard. And so the oncologist looks at the x-rays, the MRI. Oh, yeah, he sees the cancer, but he tells the, the people that come, says, it looks good to me. You're, you're good. Go enjoy life. Because he doesn't want to tell them anymore the truth. You, you with me? There's a lot of pastors now who won't tell their, their people. They tell their people, you're good enough. You're going to get to heaven. You got enough good deeds. Good, it doesn't, there's even a religious leader who says, if you're a good atheist, I think you'll get to heaven too. It re, it's, it's sad. So the gospel is no longer being preached because men won't give the people the truth. But it is difficult. It's one of my least favorite things to do. Lesson three, we're often blind to our own faults, but man, can we see other people's faults magnified. So David, Nathan comes and gives this little parable about the, the rich guy and the poor guy that only has one sheep and the rich guy has a ton. And David, I mean, it's all about David, but he doesn't see it at all. He is totally blind. But man, does he see it in this other person, the same sin. He's like, yeah, that guy deserves to die. He needs to pay fourfold. He, he is so horrible. So we're very good at seeing other people's sins. But we're very bad at seeing our own. And Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus goes, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You're, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother, brother's eye. David, you are a hypocrite. You are condemning that person that took that one sheep, but you are guilty. You have a plank. You took a woman and killed her husband. Romans 2, 1 to 2, same truth. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Do you understand that? When you're passing judgment on someone else, 99% of the time, you're actually passing judgment on yourself because you are guilty of the same root sin. My wife and I are talking. Do you see that brother in the church? 
they cannot control their spending. They're spending money all the time. They're wasteful. They're not saving it. They're, they're not giving. They just, they have no self-control, dear. I, I can't believe, you know, that they're, by the way, did you pick up my five Big Macs at McDonald's for me to eat for my snack? Do you follow how you judge others? You are judging yourself. So this goes to lesson four. Perhaps, now this is interesting. There's verses, don't hold this to 100% of the time, but often in scripture, it looks like we actually choose our own punishment. I was thinking that sometimes when we were raising our six kids, that sometimes you would say to your kids, what kind of punishment do you deserve? You let them choose the punishment, okay? Well, that's, sometimes it looks like God lets us choose our own punishment by how we judge someone else. So Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 to 3, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. In the measure you use, it'll be measured to you, right? James 2, 12 to 13, speak and act. So let's go back to David. David first declares that person needs to die and he needs to pay fourfold. He basically gives his own judgment to himself. Now, he confesses his sin, so God says, you won't die, but David does pay fourfold. James 2, 12 to 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the scriptures that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when you hear someone else, what David should have done, yeah, this guy took his sheep. David says, you know what, maybe, maybe that rich guy was having a bad day. You know, we probably should forgive, you know, and, and maybe we should help them work this out. He, he should have shown mercy instead of judgment, but you wind up, the measure you use, God says, great, that's what I'm going to measure to you, okay? Lesson five, what exactly is David guilty of, and what can we learn from this? So look at chapter 12, and let me show you five things that I see David is guilty of. So number one is in verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10, the Lord says to him, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised what? Despised me. So the first thing David is guilty of is despising God. He's, he's walked with God. God's been a good friend. But David in committing adultery and killing her husband, God says, you despised me. So much for our friendship. So much for you following me and loving me. You despised God. And then closely related to that is back in verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? So God's like, not only did you despise me, but you despised my word, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. So 
you despise the scriptures that are given by the Holy Spirit. And then number three, you took Uriah, verse 10, you therefore, this, now therefore the sword will never depart from your home because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And what's interesting is like all through history, God has like permanently reminds us that David stole another man's wife. So, and, and I'll be getting to this in the future, but in Matthew chapter one is the genealogy of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, married to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the Jews would memorize their genealogy. Well, in that genealogy that they memorized, Joseph was a descendant from King David, of course, hundreds and hundreds of years later, but I'm going to start at the end of verse 5. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. Jesse is the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So God puts right in the New Testament for everyone to all time to always remember, hey, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget. This woman, Bathsheba, was not David's wife, really. This woman was Uriah's wife that he took. And so I'm like, wow, right there. Don't, you know, don't mistaken that he stole this woman. Number four. And this is, this is sad. Look at verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9. So let me see. He despised God. He despised his word. He stole another man's wife. And then in verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. So keep that in mind. He had him killed with the sword and took his wife to be your own. And then the Lord emphasizes something here. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So there's like a second emphasis. Not only, David, did you kill him, but you killed him using the army of Satan. You used Satan and his army to kill your own best friend. So David's in panic. He's in trouble. And so in a sense, this is called going back to Egypt. This is in, in the Old Testament, the Israelites are always told, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Pharaoh, who represents Satan, and Egypt represents the world. So God's constantly, after you're saved, they had the Passover, the baptism through the Red Sea, after you're saved, don't go back to your old master, Satan. We've all been delivered. We were all slaves to Satan. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to Pharaoh and don't turn to the world to help you out. You're trusting Jesus. But David has to kill someone. And so, in essence, he turns to his old, to the world, 
to the enemy and says, hey, Satan, I, I, know, I know you were my old master. I know I've been set free from you by Jesus Christ, but I need your help. I got myself into trouble. Do you mind if you kill someone to help me out? So David turns, and, and God says, how could you? You turn to the Ammonites, you turn to the wicked to kill one of God's people. You're driving down the road, and I know this is just an easy sin to pick on without picking on other specific sins. This is road rage. I know none of us have road rage problems, okay? Although studies show that about 80% of the people out there do, but not us. Anyway, you're driving down the road, someone cuts you off, I curse you and hope that you have a car accident down the road and get killed. Now, when you do that, you're not actually praying to God. You know that? Because God doesn't do that stuff. So you are actually asking Satan, your old master, to help you out. Satan, I usually don't come to you, but I remember you're the God of of punishment and death and hurting people. Uh, Would you do me a favor? Would you punish that driver who just cut me off? Would you do something bad to them? You just turn to the enemy for help to curse someone. Or Number five that I see, what David was guilty of, is, is just not coming to the Lord. So look at chapter, verse seven. And I'll... So Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And now this is God talking to to David. And let me, I'll, I'll apply it to myself, okay? So he says to David, the Lord says to David, I anointed you king over Israel. That would be like the Lord saying to me, Joe, I anointed you with the Holy Spirit to be lead pastor over life point, Okay. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. So the Lord says, Joe, and I delivered you from the hand of your enemies and the devil. And I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I, as I said before, one wife, my wife is 100 women in one. I know some men need multiple wives. My wife is all of them. So... So I gave you that I gave you a wife. I gave you all Israel and Judah. So that's the Lord saying, "Look, Joe, I gave you a great church. You have wonderful staff. You have a nice house. You drive a nice car. You have a nice wife. You've got lots of neat hobbies. I've given you health. And if you were bored, Instead of sleeping around with another woman in the church, if you're bored, and, and most of the time that you're cheating, you're just bored in life, you're looking for something else. God says, if that, if that wasn't enough, if that had been too little, Joe, I would have given you even more. Why didn't you come to me, David? David, if you were bored, if you were like looking for a new challenge, if you were like, ah, I, I, you know, God says, it really, you shouldn't have gone after Bathsheba. 
I would have given you a new hobby, a new interest, something you should, you just had to come to me and ask. I would have renewed your love for the wife, the wives that you have. I, so why would you do that? So it reminds me of all of us. Like in James, it says you do not have because you do not ask. So instead of lusting and getting yourself into trouble. Just come to God and say, God, I'm not happy. I'm, I don't know what it is I'm missing. Um, I don't believe it's that someone else's spouse. I don't believe I need to get it. You know, I, I need your help, Lord. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So I just think God's like, David, I've given you so much. If it wasn't enough, just let me know. I would have, you know, helped you out that you didn't have to take someone else's wife. Lesson six, what's the actual punishment God brings upon David? Well, he, he does tell David that he's probably going to die when David says, this man deserves to die. It wasn't until David said to Nathan in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, that Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are, you are not going to die. I'll talk about, because I'm out of time, more this next week. But David does say he needs to pay fourfold. He needs to lose, the rich man needs to lose four lambs and so if you come back to verse 10, the Lord says, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. So, and if you know, David will lose four sons to basically the sword, but to death. First son is of course the son David and Bathsheba have. Second son is the next chapter. Am Amnon gets killed by one of his other brothers, one of David's other sons. So that's the second son. The third son is Absalom, who revolts. It's probably David's favorite son, who revolts against his father to try to take over. He's the one that sleeps with David's wives in public. And... Absalom gets killed, so that's son number three. And then Adjajir gets killed in the beginning of 1 Kings, and that's son number four. Now, again, I'm just recommending to all of you, be very careful how you judge others because Jesus says, the measure you use is what I'll measure to you so I would be very merciful, very grace-filled. When you see a brother or sister in sin or other people in sin, you should be always in the back of your mind, how would you, do you want dish back to you what you're dishing on someone else? Did God kill these four sons? It's a good question. So what I believe God did was he removed his divine protection around David's family. 
You don't want this to happen. Like Job, there was a divine protection around his family that then when God removed it, Satan was able to attack. We all have guardian angels as believers. We have guardian angels and divine protection that we don't realize how often probably God has protected our lives. We pray for traveling mercies. We pray, may God's angels and his spirit protect us as we travel on the road. This is just an example. And then you're driving down the road. Oh, there's a car accident in front of me. I got a detour. I hate detours. It's going to make me late for work. Not realizing that an angel saw that if the normal course of history would have taken place and the angel didn't have that detour at that point to take you off, if the angel hadn't arranged that, you would have gone on and a head-on collision and you would have been killed. But you don't see that side. You're praying for it. You trust in God's deliverance and protection. But when we get to heaven someday, I think God's going to show just how busy his guardian angels and prayers were changing the course of history in our lives so that normally what would have occurred did not occur. So I think God just removed the protection from these four sons. And so when when God removes his protection, he says, I'm just going to let the normal course of history happen. And this is what people do. When I remove my protection, people just start hurting each other. You know, 2 Thessalonians talks about that the spirit of God and the church is holding back the day of evil. The reason why we are not totally destroying ourselves on this planet yet is because the Holy Spirit and the church is restraining. We're like salt. We're like we're holding back what normally would happen. But at some point when Jesus takes the bride out, the church goes out and that divine holding back of evil, the spirit of God goes with the church and then the normal course of history occurs in Revelation, the seven years of the tribulation. Wait till you see what people will do to each other on this earth when there is no church and Holy Spirit holding back the satanic influence and the sinful nature of people Well, within the first three years, half the earth will be killed. 50% of the people will kill each other. So this is where I ended with the first service. So worship team, come. I know. Part two next week. I'm out of time. The 11 o'clock people will start. They're the only service I can go to one, two o'clock. Let me pray. So, you know, I read David's life, and believe me, I'm just glad you don't know everything about my life before I got saved. Because you might be like, and he's our pastor? And I'm glad you don't know everything 
a lot of the things I did after I got saved too. I'm definitely not the same person I was 40 years ago. I've grown and 30 years ago, but I'm not perfect yet, by the way. When I, when I get to glory, I will, my sinful nature will be gone. But I've, I've learned through the years to be much more merciful and less judgmental because I realize I am a broken sinner as well. And thank goodness for the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives us. His grace is greater than any of our sins. So we all have a terminal illness. We're sinners, but praise God, there is a cure. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Cecilia, you're going to this was a, this, this was supposed to be the song at the end now of next week's sermon. So, but this is creating me a clean heart. So this is the prayer David prayed about, you know, his sin. So I think we should, I think it's appropriate to sing this to the Lord and to ask for forgiveness in our lives. So let's stand.